Gracious God, we have taken time today to pause in our work and our play, to come together and remember that you are good and you have brought us here. This week we have celebrated the gift of brand new healthy life and the gift of baby Anna Salee. We are so grateful for her. We have also felt the pain of life that has left us. And as we hold these things in tension, we know that you are in both places and in every mundane moment in between. We are thankful for your consistent, faithful presence with us as we walk through our lives. As we celebrate Independence Day and our nation's birthday this week, we thank you for those to whom you have given the gifts of justice and a passion for freedom. We are grateful for the ways that they have served us and been good stewards of those gifts to benefit the greater good. They are a reflection of your self-sacrificial love. And even as we celebrate them, we remember that you, God, are the one who fully embodies justice and service and freedom, and in you is where we find freedom. We pray for Justin as he comes to teach us from your word, open our ears to hear and respond. We thank you so much, God, for each other. We ask all of this in the strong and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Hope, our children's pastor who can kind of do it all. Uh, My name is Justin Hedges. I am not one of the pastors here. I'm the guy that Chris calls in so that you guys can realize how good you have it the other 51 weeks that the pastors are preaching. Uh, I'm an attorney by trade, but still called to minister, and so I find little ways to plug in here and there uh, and, and continue to fulfill God's call on my life. Uh, nevertheless, I, uh, I will try to keep this tonight uh, meaningful and as short or shorter than Paul George's free agency. Uh, <laughs> I, I try not to make that comment, but I have to be true to myself and share good news. Um, pray for your pastors this week. Uh, Pastor Chris is on vacation, got off to a little bit of a bumpy start, and we sure want him to uh, be able to settle down and enjoy that time of rest. Pastor Mikhail is on sabbatical, uh, but she is not just laying around watching the World Cup for a few weeks. Uh, she's also spending a lot of time in prayer and contemplation about some critical next steps for ministry at this church. We have pastors dealing with things in their families, pastors trying to figure out how to be parents for the first or second time. Just uh, keep your pastors in your prayers as you go about your life and, and things this week. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Second Sam- Samuel chapter 1. Um, before we get there, have, have you ever known an opportunist? You know, uh, the, the, the kind of guy or gal who just annoys the crud out of you <laughs> because they're always looking for a way to one-up uh, or to seize the moment in someone else's weakness or game the system to their advantage. Don't, don't they just annoy the life out of you sometimes? Now, I say that in full and open confession that I can be one too. Um, my basketball career peaked in about the ninth grade, so I, I missed the NBA by that much. Uh, and uh, even though I, you know, practice, work hard, try to, you know, 
be a better basketball player. I knew when, when tryouts came around back at ninth grade, North Intermediate High School in Broken Arrow, that there were just enough players who were better than me that I, I was going to be right on that cut line. And so as I practiced and uh, worked with other friends of mine who were much better than me and I knew we were going to be on the team to, to get better, um, I kind of you know, was always watching friends and classmates and people who I thought may or may not make it uh, instead of me. Uh, and, and I remember vividly there were two uh, guys um, who I was particularly concerned about because um, one of them uh, was, was a starter on my, my middle school team, and, and so I knew he was probably going to make it. And one came from a different middle school that he was supposed to be even better, so the number of spots available for me were kind of running out. And so when I heard that the first guy was going to focus on baseball instead of basketball, I sweet, okay, one down, one to go. And then the other guy decided to focus on um, not his grades. Uh, and so uh, he was ineligible when tryouts came around. And without a shred of guilt, I felt I was like, oh, sweet, those two guys are out. I'll probably make it. I did, but again, that was that was the end of it uh, for me. That was that was my last hurrah. I was freshman basketball, but it, it was just good to have those guys out of the way because then I got my opportunity today in Second Samuel one. We read about a couple of opportunists. If you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers have one. Uh, just raise your hand, and they will let you borrow one. If you don't have it, um, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep this. Uh, on your own. Um, it's a little bit of an interesting story. Uh, I, I don't think he does it on purpose, but I swear Chris goes out of town on vacation when the lectionary texts are just weird. Um, and, hey, Justin, you want to preach this Sunday? Uh, and, and if the lectionary is just kind of a, a prescribed list of texts that the pastors and, and ministers all across the globe use on this Sunday to kind of keep in, in rhythm with the church calendar. Uh, but it's one of those stories that if you kind of know the background, it leaves you scratching your head and going, okay, that's weird. You, you have kind of everything that happens in, the, in 1 Samuel, this kind of tortured kingship of Saul. He's the first anointed king of Israel. Israel wants a king. God says, you don't need a king. I'm your king. Israel says, no, we want a king. God says, okay, it's not going to go well, but here you go. And so Saul is chosen by Samuel, anointed by Samuel as Israel's first king. And it's just kind of tortured. He isn't the best at following what, what God uh, wants him to do. Uh, this character David comes along, and he gets jealous of Saul, and Saul gets jealous of him. And there's kind of a tortured relationship. It's not all smooth sailing in 1 Samuel. And then you have this story Kicking off the second, kicking off Second Samuel, and if you would, if you're able, please stand as we read this chapter. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Malachites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground and did obeisance. David said to him, "Where have you come from?" He said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Tell me. He answered, the army fled from battle, but also many of the army fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan also died. 
And David asked the young man who was reporting to him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan died? The young man reporting to him said, I happened to be on Mount Geboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, while the chariots and the horsemen drew close to him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. I answered him, Here, sir. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me, Come, stand over me and kill me, for convulsions have seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, for I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men who were with him did the same. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who had reported to him, Where do you come from? He answered, I am the son of a resident alien, an Amalekite. David said to him, Were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Come here and strike him down. So he struck him down, and he died. David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David intoned this lamentation over Saul and his son Jonathan. He ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Goth. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. No bounteous fields. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. And let us say together. You may be seated. So two opportunists in this passage. First you have the Amalekite. Can't you see him? The scene. It's post-war. The Philistines have just ransacked Saul and his army. They're defeated in battle. There's bodies everywhere. There's blood everywhere. And their king lies there wounded, shot with arrows, stabbed with swords. He doesn't have long to live. The king of Israel is close to death. And in comes this little squirrely guy, an Amalekite. Where'd he come from? I thought the Israelites were supposed to destroy the Amalekites a few chapters earlier. Uh, he was a, maybe a prisoner of war, and he's not there to check up on Saul. Probably seizing an opportunity, thinking, hey, the battle's over. A lot of people are dead. The rest of people are going back to the camps. 
let's see what I can find. Maybe there's something to pillage in here. Maybe there's something to take home. Maybe there's a way I can profit off this situation. So he goes in and he finds the king of Israel still alive, but mortally wounded. Uh, and so he gets another good idea. He's a good little opportunist. Uh, the, the king is requesting that I kill him, and even though he's the king of Israel, uh, I could do this. I mean, he's going to die anyway. This will be a mercy killing. And then, one, he'll be out of the way. I can take whatever I want. And knowing maybe the story of David and Saul and their not-so-great relationship, David's going to like hearing this news. He's going to like knowing that I've kind of helped clear the way for him to ascend to the throne. And so, he takes the crown, he takes the armlet, who knows what else, and he seeks out the, the new king, or the new soon-to-be king, David. Comes to David, David, I've got bad news. Wink. The, the, the king has died. And, and then Malachi, he's got this sense of anticipation that when he gives David this news, David's going to be happy because, hey, David's king now. <clears throat> but the reaction's different. We see how the opportunist is rewarded. Instead of being rewarded for putting Saul out of his misery like the kind Amalekite he was, instead of being rewarded for delivering this great news to David, David, you are now going to be king. David, yeah, okay, you killed Saul, now you die. End of story. End of the Amalekite story. One opportunist, gone. And then we have this other opportunist, David. Uh, we, we see him and his response. He, he's just finished a battle. Uh, he's there in Ziklag, regrouping, thinking, what's next? Do I, do I stay here for a while? Do I go back to Judah? What, what do I do in this situation? In comes this squirrely guy. Uh, David isn't sure how things are going, but uh, you know, last encounter with the Philistines that he had went over pretty well. If you remember Pastor Chris's story from last week, and the giant Goliath is defeated. Uh, and so he has no reason to expect that anything has changed. But then he gets news. Uh, the Philistines have decimated your people. Gut punch. And Saul and Jonathan are dead again. This is just a blow to David. A, a complete bomb is dropped. The breath is taken out of him, and he doesn't know what to do. So he has to kind of process it, ask more questions. Wait again, who are you? How do you know that Saul is dead? And he gets the testimony of this Amalekite and is able to piece, thing together, piece things together. And, and when you see David's response, that he immediately goes into mourning that Saul is dead, that he has this anger towards this Amalekite who killed Saul even though Saul was going to die anyways. Uh, when he gives this, this poem of, of great sorrow about how great Saul was as a king, if you've been paying attention to Scripture up at this point, you've got to go, what? <laughs> David... And, Paul, or, and Saul did not have a great relationship. Uh, in fact, earlier in 1 Samuel, in, in chapters 24 and, and chapters 26, there are counts of David having the opportunity to kill Saul himself, and he definitely thinks about it. He wants to. He wants Saul dead. He wants Saul out of the picture. David has his posse with him. Like They're cheering him on. Like, come on, David, this is your opportunity. The Lord has given you this opportunity to kill Saul. And luckily, David kind of comes to his senses and goes, no, you know what, the Lord will deal with him, I won't. But it is not unclear in 1 Samuel that David would like to see Saul gone. 
And so this response that now David's sad that Saul's dead, and now he's sad that, that the path is clear for David to become king, does not resonate with our reading of this story so far. And so you're left wondering, what exactly is going on here? I mean, it, it makes me want to do kind of a psychological evaluation of David. I mean, is he that much of an opportunist? Is he so smart that he says, you know what? I'm just going to dial it back a little bit, play it cool, not let anyone know that I'm super excited that Saul's dead. Or is there something going on, uh, you know, it makes, me, it makes me wonder what exactly is going on in his head, but then uh, if you're new to this church, there's like 100 people in here, and between 100 people, there's like 150 counseling and psycholo- psychology degrees. So I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, <clears throat> way too intimidated. But you do wonder, what is going on here? He has this really weird reaction. You hear, don't kill the messenger. David does not get the memo. He, he kills the messenger, and maybe, maybe the messenger deserved it. I mean, he does seem to be this Weasley kind of guy. He is an enemy of Israel. He comes expecting to get something, to be rewarded for bringing this news, and we see what he gets. The young man sees Saul as David's enemy. Most of us would have before reading this chapter. He sees Saul as an obstacle to David's rise to the throne, and he thinks the death of Saul will be good news to David. He thinks killing Saul has put him out of his misery. But David sees it differently. And he sees it a lot more simply, too. It's kind of black and white for David. You killed the Lord's anointed. You admitted it to yourself. It doesn't matter that Saul would have died anyway. It does not matter that he made David's life miserable up until this point. It only mattered that Saul did have moments of life left. And it matters that this Amalekite took those moments. So maybe David is a smooth opportunist, hiding his joy behind this moment of grief and sorrow. I mean, he does finally get to be king. But I think there's a couple of things, other things going on here. One can't be missed because it's just right there in front of us. David becomes, before king, kind of a, a mourner-in-chief. We see uh, lamentations and, and songs and psalms of sorrow all throughout Scripture. And, and they're all occasioned by different things, but we see it in a very specific context here where David takes time to grieve. Uh, because really for David, he knows everything is going to be all right. Uh, He knows that there are ways forward. He knows he's next in line to the throne. There's no sense for this opportunist to just jump on the kingship now. Even David is sensitive enough to not immediately embrace the good news that this bad news brings. He shows us how to grieve. Uh, He shows us raw emotion. Uh, He shows us as soon-to-be king of Israel uh, that he is experiencing this terrible and profound sorrow as well. And and if nothing else, that's kind of a good model to us. Uh, It it kind of sets a stage for us, especially in our society where, how you doing? Everything's all right. Okay, good. Bye. Bye. And that's, that's the extent that we're willing to show everybody most of the time. Three-minute drill. 
Some of us love it, some of us don't. But the goal there was to understand that our relationships sometimes in this world can be about that shallow. Can we be honest with each other? Uh, Can we let each other know when, you know what, things aren't going well right now. Uh, I'm grieving, I'm struggling, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm worried. Uh, David, instead of thinking, I, I have to be king, I have to get it all together, I have to have my suit tailored and my shirt pressed, he just lays it all out there. He grieves. This is a time for sorrow. And we have this stark contrast between these two opportunists. Uh, The Amalekite who acts like we would all expect someone like him to act. He sees an opportunity to better his life. He snatches it, doesn't worry about how it makes him look or how people might receive the news. He does what we would all expect him to do. I mean, Saul was going to die anyways, right? And we see how he is unceremoniously ended. And David surprises us. David reacts the way none of us would have expected him to react. And he goes down in history as pretty much everyone's favorite king. So what do we do with these two figures? What do we do with David's odd reaction? What do we make of this story? As a youth pastor for seven years before I left to go to law school... Only did two funerals that time. Thank goodness neither of them were uh, for a teenager. Uh, One was a grandparent of a teenager, and one was someone I worked with. And and there's a stark contrast in my limited experience between those two funerals. The the one was someone who, uh, let's see, how do you put this diplomatically? Have you ever been to a funeral where you can tell that the pastor is stretching the truth just a little? Uh, where they're, they're glossing over a few things and trying to make sure that the deceased looks as good as possible and, and is consoling the family with a version of the truth so weird that you have to kind of nudge the person next to you. Did we show up at the right funeral? Uh, because they just weren't that good of a person. It, it's, it's kind of awkward. We've probably all been to a funeral like that where you're going, ooh, <laughs> what are they going to say about this guy or gal? How are they going to summarize up his or her life? The other one was a lot easier. This was a person who was in, involved in mission, served the church, and most importantly, just loved Jesus. And you just knew, hey, whatever God's got in store for us after we check out here, he's well on his way to it. it, it but it's that, that first kind where, where you're wondering, how do you eulogize someone you think is a bit of a scoundrel? Uh, someone who didn't really live a life worth admiring. Because uh, it kind of feels like David's doing that in this psalm. It, it kind of feels like, wait a second, David, you uh, infringed on Saul's territory. He did not like you. In fact, you cut into his legacy because Jonathan doesn't get to be, his son, Saul's son doesn't get to be king. You're cutting in here and you're going to be the king after Saul. You have this jealous relationship with him. You think he needs to die and die soon in 1 Samuel. So why in 2 Samuel are you telling us how great Saul is? And that we all need to mourn. And that we all need to, to you know, just the, even the mountain that he died on is cursed. What is going on here? As I think about it more and more, what I see is this. 
what we have in David's poem is not just a poem in a book of nice poems. I mean, David can write well. He, he has a great way of expressing himself. That's the gift. That's why we have his words in our scripture. But then we remember this is David's lament, and it is in this Bible. So uh, maybe it's not just a good poem for a good poem's sake. Maybe it's not just a good archetype for how we ourselves can learn to mourn and learn to grieve well. And because it's part of Scripture, it's something else. And it's something else that you've already said, thanks be to God for. So we've got to figure out what we're thankful for here. These are great words of grief from a man with a golden tongue. But even more than that, when you think of all the mistakes that Saul makes, uh, when you think of, of how he doesn't obey God's commands, when you think about how he has kind of this hard heart all through Scripture, we realize that these are not just words of David's sorrow, but because they are Scripture, they are also words of grace. As God's words... These are not just uh, polished up memories to kind of make a palatable funeral so David could hide his opportunistic ways and fool everyone into thinking he's really sad to make sure no one catches on that he's really excited to be king now. These are words of grace. As a man who has made as many mistakes as Saul has, This is not just a glossing over of how Saul would have liked to be remembered as if he wrote his own eulogy. Uh, These are not just uh, words that David is using as a good, to score good political points. As Scripture, we realize that these are not just words of David at all. As Scripture, we get a glimpse that this is how God intends Saul to be remembered. This is how God intends for Saul to be grieved. And that is really good news for Saul. It's really good for any of us who have uttered or heard the phrase, you're not good enough. I venture a pretty good guess. That's probably a lot of us at some level or in some way. Maybe for us, not good enough just meant the ninth grade basketball team. But maybe it was just the peer pressure to fit in somewhere, somehow, with some bodies that we all felt during those wonderfully angst-prone years of being a teen. Because we all know those feelings stopped as soon as we stopped being teenagers, right? We look at our job and we wonder, am I good enough? Am I doing a good enough job? Or is this job even have a point. What's my worth here? We think, "Ah, I don't know if I'm nailing this parent thing. Uh, My kid seems to make good choices when I'm with them, when they're at school or with friends. Not so much. I'm just not good enough. Uh, We think, "Ah, I should have stayed in school longer. Should have got that degree or should have majored in that. Definitely be more successful now if I had Am who I becoming, who I want to be remembered as? Am I good enough? We hear the voices echo, you are not good enough. Look at all these mistakes you've made. You should be making money. You should, be, you should have more friends. You should have better friends. I feel like I have 
almost good enough friends, but I know two people who were at Russell Westbrook's party last night, and I wasn't, so I haven't quite made it there yet. <laughs> we judge ourselves. Why did they make it? I didn't. You're not good enough. Maybe more in this room, it comes along the lines of that Christian guilt. You're not good enough. Think about all the mistakes you made. Think about all the good that you haven't quite done yet. Hey, you should have ministered to that person. You should have witnessed to that guy. You should have given more money to that trip, to that project, to that ministry, to that charity. If you can't at least do more things, maybe you could cut back on all the bad things that you're doing a little bit, but ah, can't even get that together. And it echoes and it echoes and it echoes in our head, you are not good enough. Because it's the judgment that we would have passed on Saul before reading David's words. It's amazing. We spend our lives remembering all the bad things that we do. And we so easily forget that we're serving a God who seems to be preoccupied with the good things that we do. At the end of Saul's life, it's not all the things that God could have cast Saul on the bad side about. It's all the reasons he wants to embrace Saul. We have this tendency to focus on the irredeemable aspects of our lives when we have this immensely gracious God who seems ridiculously preoccupied with focusing on the redeemable. And in that light, these words become grace. Uh, These words are about Saul because what does David say? Saul is God's anointed. Now, spoiler alert, keep reading your Bible. We are all made in God's image, and in 1 John 2, we are all God's anointed. And so, if this is how God chooses to see His anointed in spite of all the bad things that He's done, this is how God chooses to see all of God's anointed, even when we feel like we're not good enough. You're not good enough. There, there's also words we use about others. That, that's a phrase we might use against others, and, and maybe God's words of grace need to step in there. Uh, even though maybe we, maybe we are better, maybe we, we're good about not beating ourselves up about how bad we are, but we're really good about beating others up about how much they fall short. We look at the people across the office. Man, their life is a mess. Glad I'm not like them. <laughs> or maybe we see the other person and think the exact opposite. Man, they are so uptight and legalistic. They just need to relax and chill. I'm glad I'm not like them. Man, that, that crotchety old person who stood up for all the wrong things in life. I'm glad I'm so much more enlightened than he is. We do exactly what we would do in reading 1 Samuel and trying to think about how good of a king Saul is. We say, you know what, they're just not good enough. And to that, these words of grace that David speaks completely catch us off guard because we are once again confronted with the fact that we serve a God who is so focused on how to redeem us. It's a battle story. David and Saul and Jonathan, they have all been fighting together. 
And, and it, 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 to me, it reminds me of, and this is the thing I miss about preaching, Lord of the Rings analogies. Uh, the end of Fellowship of the Ring. Boromir, you remember that character? The, the other human who's not the king? He, he's after the ring. He's after power. He wants to steal the ring from Frodo. He tries to steal the ring from Frodo. He's kind of the jerk in the fellowship. But then you get to that final scene. And if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry. I'm going to spoil it for you because it's been like 10 years. 15. Good Lord. <laughs> they get to the, the battle scene and, and Boromir is killed. And as he's dying, Aragorn, the other man, comes over and, and Boromir confesses. And you're, you, you kind of think, eh. Good, he deserved it. He was the troublemaker in the fellowship. He tried to hurt Frodo. He tried to steal the ring. He's the one who deserves to die here. But Aragorn's words to him is this. You fought bravely. I think that's kind of what we're getting here when we read David's words about Saul. It's not, man, I wanted to kill you. For the first king, you were really bad. I mean, you didn't have much to mess up, and you messed up a lot. Uh, David could have said, all right, old administration's out, new administration's here, we're going to get things right this time. He never does, but hey, we're going to get things right this time, and, and let's forget about that guy who messed everything up. It's not David's words. It's not God's words. God chooses instead to give words on, of grace. You know, as an opportunist, there are only so many Spots on that basketball roster that could be filled. We have to remember, we have to remember that there's no limitation of roster spots in God's grace. Even if we feel like someone doesn't measure up, granting them the same grace that God grants to us doesn't do anything to take away from God's grace to us. It's bountiful, it's limitless. And what we have to remember is that when we are uttering these words of grace to people that we may feel like don't quite measure up, who aren't good enough, who have certainly made enough mistakes, it doesn't count ourselves out. And we have to keep ourselves from filtering other people out. Because when we realize that we are redeemable, that when we feel like we're not good enough, these words of grace are the kinds of judgments that God would pass on us. She's good. He's good. They're also the same kinds of words and grace that God would pass on others. And as we stop filtering ourselves out, as we stop filtering others out, we realize that there is so much room at God's table, which is how we close our worship services here, by coming to the table and breaking bread with one another by participating in the Lord's Supper. If you're new here or you're not a regular here in the Nazarene Church, we we practice an open table, uh, which means two things here. Uh, One, if you see Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you would like to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior, this table is for you, and we invite you to participate. Two, we try to remove as many barriers as we can, so the cup is non-alcoholic, the bread is gluten-free, so if you have any concerns about that, don't. But I invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper, remembering that this is a meal Jesus shared with his friends, the guys who helped him out, 
the people who enabled his ministry, and the guy who denied him the next day, the guy who betrayed him. It was a table for all who would seek Jesus. So we're reminded that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, blessed it, gave thanks, and told his disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. Each one of you. You're good enough. Then he took the cup, blessed it, gave thanks, and said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Eat and drink in remembrance of me. In a second, I'll pray, and then I'll invite you to stand up, come to your left, to the servers in front of your aisle, with your hands cupped, because this is a meal of grace that reflects words of grace. It's a means of grace, and it is something that God gives to you. We don't take it, we receive it. And dip it in the cup, eat, and be reminded of God's bountiful grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot do anything but be so thankful that every time we are tempted to say we are not good enough, every time we are tempted to catalog our failures, our mistakes, our shortcomings, the problems of others, the sins of others, the brokenness in our lives and others' lives, you have found a way to wrap your love and your grace all around that and welcome us to the table. We do this remembering how much you love us and how you have for some wonderful but unbelievable way called us good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. When you're ready, come and partake.